Okay, Elliot, the important question is, do you arrange books by colour, date or size? Oh, see, or alphabetical. Or alphabetical, yes. See, it's quite bad at the minute. At the minute, they're sort of placed randomly. I would you could say <laughs> they are sort of high order to a certain degree, but yeah, they are, I will admit, they are randomly placed. They are in categories a little bit. We've sort of got Clementine and the children and the, the official biographies, but yeah, widely, I, w- I will have to admit they are randomly placed wherever they land. Hello and welcome to the Historians in Training podcast with Josh, Amy and Corey. And this week we are joined by Elliot Clark. Hello, Elliot. Hello. Thank you very much for having me here today. That's all right. Apart from being a major Churchill historian, Elliot has also been teaching me how to use Twitter, which has been painful for both of us, let's be honest. (laughs) It's been a good experience. And Elliot, you're not actually on our course anymore, so... I'm not. No, I'm on the ResM course now. So my yeah. focus this week has been the history of fatherhood. So quite different. Yeah. I mean, we miss you, buddy. We do. I you miss know. you all too. You know, you, oh. we, went, we went our separate directions. But... <laughs> okay, Elliot, you've come to talk to us about your undergraduate dissertation, which was, if you want to just give us a brief, and then we can get into the questions. So the title of it was called The Shadow Advisor, The Role of Clementine Churchill. The, the main aims behind this dissertation were to establish the role Clementine played in aiding her husband's political career and also the implications that this had on their marriage. One of the key points I want to point out from this is the historian Roger Hermiston actually stated that Churchill understood the mind of Hitler. My whole dissertation is actually arguing that similarly to this, Clementine was the one that understood the mind of Churchill and that over their 57 years of marriage, Clementine performed her role not only as a wife, but she acted as a diplomat and a political advisor. This was a role she really performed quite admirably. And she had so much respect for this across the field and across the political world. The US ambassador, John Winnett, uh, once said that if the future, if the future breeds historians of understanding, then Clementine's contributions to Britain will be granted the full measures it deserves. Yet within this field, I would argue that many biographers of Churchill have still neglected to analyze Clementine's role. And she's not been given the sort of platform that she deserves and my aim was just to rectify uh, Clementine's platform and display the successes she had alongside her husband. Um, so I'll just start by just discussing the first two chapters which really looked at the political role she played in the early years. So chapter one was if we look at a marriage in 1908 uh, Churchill wrote to Clementine just after they got married saying that I'm so centered in my politics that I often feel I must be such a dull companion to anyone who is not in the trade Clementine obviously wasn't a politician, but she fully emerged herself into this trade and she took so much excitement from it from a really early period. We see that Churchill struggled with a speech impediment as well during his early political career and Clementine was the one there which was able to support him with this. She would read through his speeches and she would be quite critical, which many wouldn't really expect from her, but she would often say to him something along the lines of that, I wouldn't say that Winston. She was always quite a shy figure from a really young age and coming over to Britain, we really see that come through. But when she marries Winston, her character starts to develop and she also starts to create that Churchillian spirit. Um, When she was on tour around Britain, helping Winston with his campaign, she became quite defensive of his reputation. She really believed in Winston. And there's one story which I'd always refer to. It was in West Leicester and a member of the crowd there sort of shouted that Churchill was a warmonger. This was quite a common event during this period. But in his defence, she actually stood up in the crowd and said that a lot of people think 
Churchill is essentially military, but in fact, his greatest talent is the talent of peacemaking. And I think that's a really key aspect of Clementine's character there. Another defence we see would be 1915, and this is quite a famous aspect of Clementine in these early years. In 1915, Churchill was obviously removed from the Admiralty uh, after the issues of Gallipoli. Um, Clementine sent a letter to the Prime Minister Asquith at this point, and within this she argues that the Prime Minister would be committing an act of weakness by removing Churchill and wasting this valuable war material which Britain now had, and as a result would be doing an injury to this country. Now, this was a controversial letter, obviously, at this stage. Asquith said that this was the defence of a wife for her husband, where Lady Asquith referred to Clementine at this point as a fishwife, which went down quite badly. Within this chapter as well, in the first chapter, I wanted to look at the Great War. We see Churchill start within the Admiralty before going onto the front line in France. During this period, we see Clementine discusses this almost military halo, which aided the regrowth of, of Churchill's reputation. He stood alongside the troops on the front line in France and the media really picked up on this and grew this military halo around him. But at home, Clementine played just as much a significant role as she did before Churchill was removed from the Admiralty. She continued his political campaign. She acquired new skills as she charmed manipulative ministers to enhance her husband's standings. She engineered many lunches and events to bring the press in to show what the Churchill family really had to offer. And it was during this period that Clementine developed these vital skills which she would need when Churchill became Prime Minister in 1940, which is the key focus of the second chapter. And I started this chapter with looking at a report by Lawrence Thompson. He described how Clementine in sustaining Winston sustained the nation. Without, Winston, without Clementine by Winston's side, Churchill couldn't have succeeded as much as he did. So this chapter is really there to illustrate that Clementine was far more than just a shadow on Churchill's arms. She was a political figure in her own right, and she possessed a lot of power. We see in this period as well, the Washington Post, similarly to that of Lawrence Thompson's report, claims that Clementine was Churchill's greatest asset. And I think that's certainly true. She took on so many different roles. She not only advised her husband and acted as his personal confidant, but she joined him on blitz tours around the country. But even more than that, she conducted her own war work alongside that of Churchill's. She showed once more, like her husband, she would never let up on work. And I think I personally argue that Clementine's most important role here was being the chair of the Aid to Russia Fund, where they were raising money from public contributions from Britain to provide medical supplies and clothing to, uh, to citizens of Russia. And in the first 12 weeks of this operation, they raised £370,000. This was never expected to gain such mass support in such a short period of time, but Clementine's presence really brought attention towards this fund. And for all of her work within this fund, she was invited to Russia, where she met Stalin, and she was, as soon as she landed, was met by adoring crowds. And these people were being bombed, they were being left from their homes, but they were still there to meet Clementine. This really touched her personally. And we see this in the letters of um, Grace Hamlin as well, Clementine's private secretary. By the end of 1940, this fund had raised £7.8 million under Clementine's command. And this was such a significant figure and really showed that the potential Clementine had on the political field. But this trip wasn't all about Clementine. This was about Britain as well. While on tour, her husband was sending her secret telegrams requesting that she expressed his desire 
with the continued friendship that Britain wanted to hold with Russia. And then later on after this, we see that Churchill described Clementine during this period as the one bright star in Anglo-Russian relations. And I think that's really key to her role here. Clementine actually played a bigger part here than many of the ministers in the House of Commons. But yeah, that's a very brief overview to those first few chapters of the significance that Clementine really held in that political sphere. Thank you, Elliot. That was extremely eloquent. And it's great for me because that's a big section of podcast I don't have to edit. So thank you. <laughs> OK, uh, I'm going to kick off the questions. Um, first of all, sorry, who's this Churchill you keep referring to? The Winston Churchill. The Prime Winston Minister. Churchill, got you. OK, of course, I'm kidding. Um, so, you know, you, you talk about Clementine, obviously. So, you know how this this kind of was a study of her. And I just I mean, I'm interested to know. So her importance why was it so kind of overlooked why has it been overlooked by historians because it's it seems like she sort of holds a position very similar to i guess you could compare it to i don't know the first lady of america yeah of course we see it's funny you say that actually the idea of the first lady there's one biography of clementine which is actually called the first lady which is by sonia pernell and she tries to bring in this aspect that clementine actually hold held such a strength during this period but in terms of why it's been ignored, I'd say that throughout the 20th century, even today, if I asked how many politicians, wives or husbands have actually been given acknowledgement, it's very few. And Clementine's no different in that, but she really took on an active role as, as the Prime Minister's wife. She felt it was her duty to do so, not only to her husband, but to her country. Throughout their marriage from 1908, she really believed in Churchill's destiny. And she knew that if he was to reach that, it was also her role to push forward uh, and achieve that with him. It was a real family effort, but why she's been ignored is a really interesting factor. We see so many biographies of Churchill. There's over a thousand at this stage, but I think there's about four or five on Clementine. And these are, these are really strong biographies coming through now, but it's, we're still not getting that message across that without Clementine by Winston's side, that he probably wouldn't have succeeded as much as he did. So, I guess it's not specifically related to sort of the historical value or anything or your sort of it's more like a personal question in the sense that because you're doing is the work you're doing is very biographical it is it is essentially just biographical for the most part I'm not uh hopefully not getting you wrong on that (laughs) and I just find that curious because I've never obviously done any biographical history really and I've always wondered do you feel like you're almost like intruding a little bit like does it do you feel really comfortable digging into these really obviously probably quite private um sources at time and how how do you how do you feel like that does that affect you when you're doing your work or yeah it can be quite strange because you learn an awful lot about Mm. these figures lives and their personal relationship as well and there was one point I was reading um, Speaking for Themselves, which Mary Soames produced, which is the letters between Winston and Clementine Churchill. And we see aspects in there where Winston has sent a letter to Clementine, but then before she actually gets it, he sends another one and asks her to burn it so no one else can see the content of it. And you really wonder at that stage of what's being said here, is there difficulties within their relationship? Are these political issues that they're talking about? And it's quite quite sort of breathtaking to think like okay what is this no one's ever going to know what was said in those letters and it wasn't just one or two this happened on quite a few occasions so you do feel like you're really intruding into these personal and private lives and like as like a a follow-up obviously 
that being said, these are still very recent figures, right? And there's still sort of, um, I mean, I don't know too much myself, but I, I'm assuming there's still quite active members of the family, you know, in the public. And um, it's, it's, it's far different than me going back to 1820 and looking through a, an officer's diary, right? Because it's it's a lot clearer for you, the, the links to the present. And do, does that affect uh, you and, and how you do your work as well? I think certainly going on to my current project, the aspect that we still have the grandchildren alive today and the great-grandchildren of the Churchills. We've got Nicholas Soames, who's just been in the House of Commons for years now. He's the grandson. Uh, we've got figures like Emma Soames as well and Celia and Edwina Sands. We've got these figures who are still here preserving the legacy of the Churchill family. And for my current project, this is a great help because we can speak to them personally and interview sure. them, discuss aspects of their life. And that's obviously integral to some of these projects that we're doing at this stage but yeah yeah, it's really cool. yeah that's a question I was thinking actually when you mentioned that is uh have you done any um I don't know if you class as oral history really or just interviews of the grandchildren in your in your work so for this project project I hadn't for this one but one person I did speak to was one of Clementine's private secretaries uh Mrs Chapman who works at uh, Chartwell Manor now and she's one of the tour guides and things there and she gave a real insight into Clementine's life once Churchill had died uh, the fact she moved back into London it's where she always wanted to be she loves Chartwell but it was never really where she wanted she wanted the excitement of city life and there's quite a few funny stories I discussed with her of how Clementine acted in London and sort of things she would tell Mrs Chapman at the time but those interviews were really quite important towards these studies and even more so this next study that I'm doing on the Churchill family um, and the dynasty behind it, those discussions with the grandchildren, which I'm hoping to have soon, will be really important there. It goes to show, I guess, how um, you're really digging behind the private life. Something which you don't often get to see in history is the private life. And I can see where Corey's question has come in here of, of how you could feel you're intruding, even as late back as... Um, what me and Corey do in the 19th century, we can still find letters, personal letters of sailors that they're writing home. And even to that extent, you think, oh, what are these people going through and what are their thoughts and feelings at the time? Um, so even for your work, which is obviously a lot more modern, um, yeah, it must be really interesting to get such a personal insight that you may not get from other sources. Yeah, definitely. And we see so many books and articles coming out at the minute, which just discuss Churchill as a politician. That's what we know him as. If you say Churchill today, instantly think of him as the prime minister. But the aspects I'm looking at are more his private life, what he was like with his family, his relationship with his wife, Clementine, and the real importance that the family held in supporting Churchill and being by his side throughout his whole life. It must be strange, though, because, you know, if, if someone was, if my family was as prevalent, uh, but I'd I feel like I'd feel some ownership over it, you know, and and then especially as uh, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know too much about my own personal family history. Obviously, they do because they're big figures, but I imagine they probably end up learning stuff about their own family that they didn't even know in terms of just some, like especially if you've got letters which they'd never got to see, which historians have picked up and stuff. I think that's just a really yeah, certainly we see it. Uh, Mary Soames, the the youngest daughter of the Churchills, um. She passed away only a couple of years ago, but she put a real big focus on preserving that legacy. And she produced a few different books there. One of them, A Daughter's Tale, gave her opinions of her mother and father's relationships. And she also 
published the whole book on their private letters and you really see the insights going through there and that it's such an important aspect of her life was her family and she found out so much more after they both passed away about that personal relationship and it's helped historians massively learn from that. I mean, it's it's almost like that. All the historians who look at the Churchill stuff are essentially filling about twenty series worth of who do you think you are. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's really interesting. So, and you know, so obviously you're doing this Clementine Churchill dissertation. Yeah. So, did you get any support or like what kind of stuff whilst you were doing this? Did you get so who was who kind of was leading the way apart from your lecturers and everything? Yeah, so I had really, I had great opportunity here that I had to support the Jenny Churchill Fund with the Churchill Archives Centre. And the fund allowed me to go over to the Churchill Archives in Cambridge and I was able to work through the, the vast amount of sources they have there. And I had the expert advice there from the Archives Director, Alan Packwood. But as well as that, I also got to speak to Catherine Carter, who's the project curator at Chartwell House. And she was able to provide me with this excellent insight into the private lives of the family held at Chartwell. Um, which is now in by the National Trust as well. So you can visit as a member of the public. And this really helped structure my final dissertation and the aspects going through of that private life, which was so important to this study. Awesome. I've got another question, if that's all right. Yeah. Sweet. Um, I was just I was just thinking, um, just then while we were talking, because, um, you know, when you, especially when you talked about the um, significance of Clementine Churchill as an individual, not necessarily as tied to Winston, right? Yeah. And so that made me think of obviously, when you're doing, because you're doing biography, do you feel, or have you been told to, do you feel pressure to like uh, incorporate other like historiographical strands? Like obviously there's a really clear um, dimension that you could maybe talk about, you know, in a, a bit of gender history, for example, in, in that sense. But like, do you feel like, you can stay purely to your sort of pure narrow biographical strand or do you feel pressured to incorporate other elements of like historiographical theory and everything like that no i think it's definitely important that we have to include things like the gender study there and it was a big part of this this dissertation mm-hmm. one of the key aspects i wanted to look that it's a bi- biographical study yes but i wanted to create a new methodology behind this way in which I did was those first two chapters were a focus on those political years. We have the, the Churchill's entering the political sphere after their marriage in 1908. And in that second chapter, looking at Churchill's premiership as his prime minister. And as we go on from that, the, the third chapter and the fourth chapter are looking more at those private lives. So if, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a little bit about the, that third chapter now. Absolutely. We see here, I titled this The Lost Years. And this is quite significant here because so many historians claim that 1930s for the Churchills were the wilderness years politically. But this dissertation, I wanted to really illustrate that the, the political wilderness was definitely the 30s, but their personal wilderness years were the 1920s. This is a period that 1921, the Churchills have the death of their two-year-old daughter, Marigold. And this obviously took the biggest blow to the family, apart from any political loss. This was the biggest one they ever had. And it really affected Winston and Clementine very personally, they suffered with areas of depression from this. Um, but for Clementine, she was mourning the death of her daughter, but she was still trying to maintain her family, her husband's career, and their own personal image of the Churchill family. And this put vast pressure on them. And one of the, the areas in this, which I think when, when researching it, it sort of affects you quite personally, is the ni- by 1937, we've seen that Churchill's career has been impacted by the, the abdication crisis with the King Edward. 
And Clementine at this point has told Churchill not to support the king's loyalty because this will affect his standings in the House of Commons. But Churchill goes against this and he, with his royalty and the royal beliefs he held, he supports his king. Supports his king. This really drained her, but she still obviously loved her husband dearly. She didn't know what to do at this stage and she turned to her sister-in-law and she sort of explained all of these feelings she was having and the burden that life was sort of having at her. And she really did consider divorce in these periods, but it was her sister-in-law which said to her that you need time away from the family, you need this personal time. And it was at this point that Clementine went away for a month or two. And this happened quite a lot through their marriage. We see that Clementine and Winston quite often have separate holidays. They need time away from each other. And I do think it was these periods of time they got to themselves that really saved that marriage going through. Yeah, I think that's perhaps, it might not be something that people know about actually, especially if Clementine has been kind of underrepresented in historiography, the idea of having these separate holidays. But then it's logical, I guess, because... Churchill was such a key political figure and it would have been such a stressful family life kind of all the time. Um, You would never really shut off from work. So I can definitely see where that that was needed. I quickly want to talk about, uh, I'm going to steal a bit from Corey here. Um, Obviously you talk about biography and I know that obviously having done like research into historiography, biography is quite heavily criticised by a lot of historians but obviously you've tried to do something different with it and having chosen to do bibliography I can't get that word right so what what was that like writing a dissertation in that kind of style when a lot of there's a lot of criticism behind kind of that actual obviously you you adapt and like you're talking about you create your own methodology which is great and it's something, you know, which is a big undertaking as an undergrad. But what was that like? And I just I just got a bit of an extra question to go with that is, um, did you feel the need to justify your choice of, of biographical account um, and the kind of wider significance of that? Yeah, definitely. When you look at the idea of uh, biography, we always have that cradle to death study. And I really wanted to avoid that, which is why I put the first two chapters was a heavy focus on those political areas before the, the third chapter going to sort of the personal losses the family faced. So the timeline of this dissertation actually jumps quite a bit. We go from sort of 1908 and then into the First World War to the 1940s, back to the 1920s. And then we jump forward again to sort of the, the late 50s and 60s. So we do have such a weird timeline going through. And this was a big concern for me is would it work? And it wasn't until I sort of put all these chapters together that I became sort of satisfied that, okay, this this style will actually help and will show what I'm trying to argue here. But when you write it, we do have so many criticisms of biography and these new methodologies coming through are certainly helpful. But yeah, you certainly feel the pressure of having to get this right, especially as an undergraduate as well. This is our first time as we're entering the historical fields and things like that. So you, you do feel the pressure to get it right. I mean, you did you did a great job. I mean, it came out it came out well. So you thank know, you very much. Well done. Um, yeah, and you know, following on from this, obviously, we're in the early to mid stages of our projects. You're doing a res M, uh, which you know, 
for people who don't know, is just a research master's. So it is, instead of doing modules, you really just focus on that one piece. So uh, obviously you're still in the early writing stages of that, but could you talk about how this dissertation may, because I know you're still looking at the church or family, like you say, could you talk about how this is either leading into or giving you some kind of background to go into this dissertation? Yeah, definitely. So obviously this study of Clementine is really important and that made me question, okay, we see Clementine has this significant impact on Churchill's career. Well, what impact did the rest of the family have in these stages? And as one of the points that when you go to the Churchill archives, you see such a vast number of sources. And with this dissertation, I had the chance that there were some letters there from Anthony Montesquieu Brown to Churchill's constituency manager, Doris Moss, which was sent in 1963. And these letters were sent to Doris Moss explaining that they needed Churchill to step down. His health was really bad at this stage and they couldn't have him as an MP anymore. He'd stepped out of office and out of cabinet, but he was still politically involved and they couldn't have this anymore. He was really struggling. But Clementine knew that if she said this to Churchill, he'd resent this. So it had to come through the actual party in the constituency. And when you see letters like that, you do realise, OK, no one's seen these before. There's still much that we don't know about the personal lives of the Churchill. So when I was doing this research and I was looking at the roles of Mary Soames was playing, for example, this made me question the, the Churchill dynasty as a whole. What can we learn from it? What impact did they have? And how did it impact, again, those personal relationships throughout the family? Brilliant. Thank you. Sorry, oh, I have a question. Um, well, I have two questions, but two questions i know so Ooh. i'll go in I'll, I'll forget them all now won't i but uh Oof. i'll go <laughs> i'll go in uh with one first so as far as the field of historiography on churchill goes now what is there on his personal life like what you've been writing about compared to the political side of things and and the political history behind it the political side obviously takes complete prominence. There's so much on it. We have got over a thousand books on Churchill and his political career. But we do very much recently have those more personal insights into Churchill's private lives and specifically those of the children. So one I would pick up instantly would be Catherine Katz's study, The Daughters of Yalta. And she puts a real significant impact on Sarah Churchill's role at Yalta and the influence she had over her father. And we have, we do have biographies of the independence. We have the biographies of Randolph Churchill, Churchill's son, and there are some of Mary and Sarah. There's very few of Diana going through, but the private lives widely have been ignored. There are a few. We've got The Citadel of the Hearts and The Private Lives of Winston Churchill, which are two prominent books by John Pearson, but it has widely been ignored, and that's sort of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to rectify that, give the family a stage as it would be, to sort of show what significance they had supporting their father, but also the impact that these relationships had. We have Churchill such a highly sort of looked at political figure. What impact did this have on the sons and the daughters of the Churchills? And how did they try to live up to these expectations which were being set on them from such an early age? And what impact was this having overall on their personal beliefs and what they were doing when they were entering their own careers? And then my second question, thank you for, thank you for that answer. Um, second question is about your primary sources. So obviously we spoke about you're using letters a lot um, and you've worked closely with um, the Churchill archives. What other primary sources have you been using to get an insight into the private 
private life behind Clementine and Churchill and the family? Yeah, of course. So for me, the Churchill Archive Centre is sort of the biggest archive I can be using. The majority of my sources will be coming from there. But that's not to say that's the only archive I'm using. We're looking at a lot of the newspaper aspects as well. What was being reported on the family during these periods? Was it positive? Was it negative? And how was this impacting not only ch the children, but Churchill's career as well? If he's having negative press produced on his family, this is going to have an impact on his political career as well. Was it having an impact on his kind of mental health, emotional health? And how did that affect his, um, his role as a political figure? Yeah, throughout his life, Churchill did struggle with depression and he called this his black dog, of course. And the children there, they had a significant role that they had to learn their father's moods and they had to be there to support him because he did really, really suffer. And Clementine, Clementine was his rock as much as Winston was Clementine's rock. But Clementine wasn't always there. She was conducting her own work and the children had to take on that role that if Churchill was suffering from these periods of depression, it was their duty then to step up and act as his personal confidant, especially during the Second World War. Um, okay, just first off, did you, it really puts it into perspective when you say that over a thousand books um, on <laughs> that kind of boggles the mind a little bit. Yeah, how many yeah. have you actually read? Nine hundred. <laughs> I'm sat in my study now, and I I easily have one to two hundred books on Churchill in this room alone. Some of those wow. would be Churchill's sort of original books that he produced. Wow. His memoirs on the Second World War is a six-volume collection. There's the study of his father, which is two volumes, and that's such a big book to read. But the biggest thing is Oof. the study, the, the official biographies produced on Churchill, which is by his son Randolph. And then after Randolph died, Martin Gilbert took those over. This is eight volumes, and they are such a big books, and there's so much to read from. I'm currently going through them, and it is taking a long time. There's so much information in these, which is going to be really vital to the study. But yeah, the, the amount of books produced on Churchill is sort of quite daunting when you look at it because yeah. you have to find you have to find your place in that field. And how do you do that when there's so many successful historians already there, and you've got to make yourself stand out? So yeah, you certainly feel the pressure of that. But definitely scope for a PhD in that. So that's always yeah. good, and hope maybe a book even in the future. Yeah, that's certainly the plan. The PhD is something I'd look to transfer to later this year. Uh, fingers crossed that all goes to plan and yeah eventually I will be looking at publishing my own sort of books on the Churchill family and sort of trying to concrete my place within that field. Yeah and in, in terms of the amount of books you've got I don't envy you when you're moving out honestly it's yeah, oh, no. yeah it's... and the amount of money that has been <laughs> sunk into buying all these books. <laughs> There's, there's an awful lot when I sort of go between home and university. It's, there's so many books to sort of carry around. Yeah. You know, I normally have a bag just of books, and it's, it's quite insane, really. I have an answer. You get a Kindle. It's transformed, it is, my, it's transformed my life, having a Kindle. It's so yeah, good. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm one of these... I don't know about you, Elliot. I'm definitely one of these, you know, elitists who feels You're that a having snob. a physical... No, it's just having a physical copy. You can... And I know you can highlight on stuff like online now, but it's, there's something very satisfying about doing it. And, you know, especially when you get a secondhand old copy, there's something lovely about having a yeah. original. It's, it's not quite the same, but the convenience outweighs. 
but outweighs it for key, me a little key bit. Keyword searches, no. guys. It's, but it's yeah, but you've got <laughs> you've got to think. We've been living on Zoom for the past year, and you know, having all these nice books makes you look really smart when they're right behind you. So you know, it's oh yeah, true. definitely. You, true. you can't you can't stick a Kindle up just un- unless you get your Kindle and it's just cycling through your book to pages. Yeah. But, no. Not as effective cool. as a bookshelf, though. Yeah, but okay, Elliot. The important question is: Do you arrange by? Color, date, or size? Oh, see. Or alphabetical. Or alphabetical, yes. See, it's quite bad at the minute. At the minute, they're sort of placed randomly. I would, you could say <laughs> they are sort of high order to a certain degree, but yeah, they are, I will admit, they are randomly placed. They are in categories a little bit. We've sort of got Clementine and the children and the, the official biographies, but yeah, widely, I, I will have to admit they are randomly placed wherever they land. We, we prefer the term organised chaos. Um, that's much yeah. better. <laughs> if, if they're on a shelf, they're doing better than mine because mine are just half open all around my room just with pieces of paper shoved into them. So, but. On that note, I have a quick question. Um, thinking about the kind of stuff we've been looking at in our public history module, uh, kind of popular history books, um, do you have to battle through kind of the academics writing it and and these more kind of popular history books um which up until recently i i have got to admit i wouldn't have really looked at and i would have thought oh they're not they're not as reliable and and they're not as useful for historians so how do you kind of deal with wading through through that there's no popular history books about churchill (laughs) what (laughs) about that's the thing was he's such a popular figure in society and there are so many books and a lot of those will be popular books but we have to look at the fact that they may be the sort of the popular aspects they will still have some of the detail that we need um the academic books obviously far more reliable they'll have far more research into them but we can still take aspects from these popular research but yeah because it's such a big field we can focus more on those academic books we've got so many coming through and still so many being produced now so that's really important to our field so we'll cut this bit. So I don't know if you, you want. No, this is all staying in. To, this uh, is all staying in. It. But we thought it'd be a nice idea, say, to give you like a, a chance to just sit and sort of tell us like explicitly what, why what you do is important and why it will be important, you know, to sort of history and uh, and the country, I suppose, as well, right? Uh, being a, such a big national figure. So if you wanted to take it away or if you want to think, I don't know. Yeah, of course. So. With this study of Clementine, Clementine's role was momentous to the success of Churchill's career. And I think that if we don't look at the role Clementine plays, there's a clear gap within the historiography of the life of Winston Churchill. She played a role that she wasn't just the wife, she was the diplomat. As the title says, she was the shadowed advisor. But the only reason she's the shadowed advisor is because historians haven't given her the stage that she actually deserves. So that was the whole aspect of why I first looked at this. We see that political impact Clementine has, the impact that has on her marriage and the family as a whole. It's such a large strain. Churchill in the Second World War, we always talk about he had the weight of the nation on his shoulders. Clementine was holding that weight just as much as Churchill was. She was going to these blitz tours. She was seeing the destruction to the, to the whole nation. And this was really impacting her personally. And I'm doing a talk in April, which will be discussing these tours in Plymouth specifically. And Clementine came away from some of these tours just in tears because of the aspects that she was having to look at. These people were injured. They'd lost everything. 
And she felt it was her responsibility that something had to be done. So I think it's really important that we do give light to Clementine's role because without her, Churchill wouldn't have succeeded like he did. Awesome, thank you. Honestly, super eloquent throughout. Yeah, <laughs> good job, man. Brilliant. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Elliot. Yeah, again, I am going to say this, and it's going to. This is going to stay in the podcast. You are our favourite guest we have ever had on. Oh, thank you very much. That means a lot. That's right. And hopefully, I put this in the right order because if you're not the first guest, it's going to look really awkward. <laughs> but um, okay, do you want to stick around to play a game with us? Yeah, of course. Play a game. Why not? Let's do it again. Do you want to play a game? Uh, Corey is currently the only one who's played this, and he's got five out of ten uh, on a game we are not. We're not actually sure if we're allowed to the title of it, so we're just calling it the unnamed cheese game. So I'm sure you can work out where it is. Um, most of these are well. This we are using the version from the 80s, so you know these questions could be ridiculous. So. Okay, I've lost this game already then at this stage. <laughs> well, you know, I mean there's there's a lot of British politics questions we've I've I've sourced from this, so you know, you never know. That puts the pressure on even more. <laughs> I know, I know. If there is a Churchill question in here, and I haven't looked at these questions, I'll, I'll let you know. But if there is a Churchill question in here I'll uh, be quite miffed if there is. <laughs> well, struggling through my Corey, <laughs> Corey, it's all it's all luck, you know. Yeah. I mean again. Churchill is more popular topic than you know. What, what do you look at boats? You know. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I will never undermine Corey's research ever again. <laughs> All right. Okay, Elliot. Starting you off. Which president was trying to clean up America at the time of the Wall Street crash? <laughs> oh, I should know this. Churchill was actually out there during the Wall Street crash. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh no. My mind has gone blank. It's the pressure. That's what it does to you. It's, That's it's, the cheese quiz. It's the hour of eloquence, eloquence that we've just gone through. <laughs> you, your, your, your brain is tired of just being a genius. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Maybe not a genius. Wow. <laughs> oh, I really don't know anymore. My mind's gone blank. Just, just say any American Jeez. president. Oh, I'm going to have to pass that one. <laughs> Herbert C. Hoover. Okay, yeah. I would have ah. said that. That's fine. <laughs> okay. This is interesting. What, uh, what colour was Judas's hair? <laughs> what, what kind of a question is <laughs> I don't know. It's it's on. Ju- Judas. Judas, you know, Judas from the Bible. Oh, come on. That's easy, mate. No, I'm just going to green Nice in. bloke. <laughs> you know. I'm just gonna get. Was he brunette? No, it was red hair. Oh, so close. I'm just remembering a Simpsons episode where Todd says, "I wish Homer was my dad," and then Ned says, "I wish you didn't have the devil's curly red hair." But you know, that's (laughs) (laughs) my. Well, you know, hey, hey, the Simpsons have predicted a lot, guys. Let's (laughs) give them some credit. Okay, maybe we should put some historical study onto the Simpsons. We're learning a lot from them. Yeah. Need to figure out how they're doing this. Yeah, I think I think Corey's looking confident with this next question. Okay, who is the most famous person to have been born at Seventeen Burton Street, London, W one? I mean, considering how this is a very opinionated question, 
so someone very famous, possibly the most famous person in the entire of England. Queen Elizabeth. Amy, these are Elliot's questions, but <laughs> <laughs> we can cut it all out until he oh, no. gets one right. It's staying in. <laughs> I'm starting to feel like I got lucky last week with these questions. So, yeah, I know. It, it feels like a lot of these questions, which are supposedly history questions, are not very... Historical. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I suppose. Um, I mean, at least at least the Queen was still the Queen back in the 80s, so that one would have still had the same answer. Um, okay, what was the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire? <laughs> 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 I just keep the chart up on my wall, honestly. Yeah, no, we've we've all got the Roman city chart. <laughs> oh no, no idea. Um, it, it, it sounds it honestly sounds like a type of metal from a Marvel movie, uh, Londinium, which I assume is an earlier yeah. London. But I am very sorry about these questions. Hopefully, a nice one comes up. I doubt it. Okay. <laughs> well, well, you are from Cornwall, so oh, who owns any dead whale on the Cornish beach? Um, How are you meant to know that? Well, surely you'd think it'd be the owner of the individual beach, but generally, would it be... I'll give you a hint because these questions are ridiculous. It's similar to how the Queen owns all the swans, but it's not the Queen. Okay, that narrows it down. <laughs> does, does Cornwall have a mayor? Would it? Like, would it be sort of the Duke of Cornwall? Would it be that? And who is the Duke of Cornwall? <laughs> Prince Charles. It is Prince Charles. Yes. There you go. Oh, well awesome. done. <laughs> <laughs> okay what did the vatican supply 40 tons of to help with the florence flood mopping up operation in 1966 did you pick these questions personally for me just to make no this... no no i didn't <laughs> josh honestly. is known as a vindictive man <laughs> <laughs> i've got i've got all my closest mates on and i'm just going to be really rude to him by asking him the worst these aren't actually questions from the game i've just you know We've just been sat up all night trying to find the hardest questions on the internet. <laughs> um, I've completely forgotten the question now. <laughs> yes, so have I. Okay, um, what did the Vatican supply 40 tonnes of to help with the Florence flood mopping uh, operation in 1966? Um, not a clue. <laughs> Honestly, not a clue what they would have used. It is blotting paper, so you know... That was what I was thinking, you know. That was that was the yeah, next. Yeah, I know. You should have said it's, it. It's obvious when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you could shuffle the questions. Well, I just, I yeah, but I could, but. But, <laughs> but you're could, not. No, but what ones if ones if there's a really lovely one coming up and we go over it? So you know, it's it's all random this game. Um, and by the way, we we should say at this point, this this game is completely to show how ridiculous these eighties questions are, and not a sign of our general knowledge intelligence. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Although I will never be taking this quiz because I'll always be asking the questions. Unfor unfortunately, we'll never get to see how intelligent I am. Yeah. Uh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Okay. Who became Britain's prime minister at the age of twenty four? Ooh. 
24. Wow. I know we're creeping up on that. I'm waiting nowhere near to be prime minister. No, I'm, I've passed it. <laughs> I feel like I've, oh, I've Corey, not accomplished you should, anything. In Corey, you, sh- <laughs> you should be in your th- second term at least by now. Yeah, what the hell? See, I don't know why, but the first person that came to my head was Wellington, but I feel like that's completely wrong, but I'm going to put that down. It was William Pitt. Oh, close. Oh. <laughs> uh What's August 15th, 1945, better known as? August 15th? Yeah. Well, I instantly thought my friend's birthday, but I don't think that's going to be one of the questions. Um, how, how old's your friend? 1945? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure on that one. I'm trying to think now. My mind is... I don't have to pass on that one. It was the answer to that question was VJ Day. Oh, of course, yes. And um, what stone provided the key to Egyptian hieroglyphics? <laughs> no idea. Unfortunately, you can't see our faces on this podcast, but Amy's lit up like a Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> I know it. <laughs> you do. I I know you know it. Um, I. I did not know this, but when I read the answer, I was very much like, oh, that makes sense. But um, okay. Uh, go on, Amy. Do you want to put us out of the misery? Is it the Rosetta Stone? It is the Rosetta Stone. Which I believe resides in the British Museum now. I mean, it I think... And it is awesome. I mean, what, what doesn't reside in the British Museum that belongs to other countries, let's be honest? Um, <laughs> Yeah, but let's not get into that. That's Elliot. the only answer I'm going to get right now. <laughs> no, so, yeah, you still haven't gone yet, Amy. That's no. that'll be exciting. I'll get them all wrong now. <laughs> That's all right, Elliot. No. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I am I am going to do some bigging up for you. So you are currently uh, on Twitter, and your handle is it is Elliot Clark underscore. Elliot Clark underscore, and you are also working on, I believe, a YouTube channel called the... The Operations Cabinet, yes. Operations Cabinet, and you're doing that with Alex Halls. Uh, It went live last month, but there's more stuff coming out over the next few weeks, which we're looking forward to getting out there now. Yeah, your first uh, episode was all about kind of writing dissertations, and it was a a fantastic, really was something I would have loved when I was doing mine, but so... So yeah, please, if you're listening to that, do... Well, if you listen to this, please do give that a listen to. Is there anything else you want to plug? I know you're also giving a speech soon. Yeah, we've got a conference coming up. The The date of mine would be April 21st, 2021, of course. Um, we've got a talk for commemorating the anniversary of the Plymouth Blitz on the 21st of April. It's myself and Professor Daniel Maudlin from the University of Plymouth. Uh, my piece will be looking at Winston and Clementine visiting uh, Plymouth and the, the impact that had and what still remembered from it today. Fantastic. Well, I think that draws us to a natural conclusion. Again, Elliot, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real delight having you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun. That's all right. And uh, obviously, Amy, Corey, thank you as always. Uh, And it's bye from us. So have a great week, guys. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.